and welcome to the Don't Be a Bystander podcast. My name is Michelle Whelan, Chief Executive of Callan DBS, and I will be today's host. Each year between the 25th of November and the 10th of December, the global campaign of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence runs. And today's podcast has been developed to coincide with the 16 days of activism and to raise awareness of domestic abuse, and how those working in the beauty industry can effectively be part of the Don't Be a Bystander community. During today's podcast, we will hear from Rachel Williams, a survivor of domestic abuse and attempted murder, and a campaigner who previously worked in the beauty industry. We will also be joined by Natalie Hancock, the Mid and West Wales Regional Violence Against Women, Domestic Abuse and Sexual Violence Lead, who will talk about the importance of raising awareness and how communities can work together to support victims of domestic abuse. Finally, we will be joined by Sarah Cook-Patrick, Chief Executive of Welsh Women's Aid, who will talk about the Don't Be a Bystander project, the importance of the project, and the impact of the project to date. Welcome all and thank you for joining us today. Before we speak with our guests, we felt it was important to set the scene to highlight the prevalence of domestic abuse. According to the National Hair and Beauty Federation, there are over 45,000 hair and beauty businesses in the UK, with over 280,000 people working in hairdressing, barbers and beauty. The Crime Survey for England and Wales showed that an estimated 2.3 million adults aged 16 to 74 experienced domestic abuse in the year ending 2020. That's 1.6 million women and over 750,000 men and two women a week are killed across England and Wales by their current or former partner. To put this into context, this means that if your clients in the beauty industry, one in four women and one in six men are potential victims of domestic abuse. Since the murder of Sarah Everard, 81 women have been killed in the UK according to the Femicide Centres, founded by Dr Karen and Garley Smith. COVID-19 has had a significant impact on victims of domestic abuse, whether measures put in place to address COVID-19 meant that victims were isolated with their perpetrators for sustained and longer periods of time, some with no opportunities to reach out for support. With restrictions lifted, victims now have more open windows of opportunities to reach out for help, and the beauty industry can play a significant role in signposting individuals to the appropriate services. Our first guest today is Rachel Williams. Welcome, Rachel, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, So I've just touched on some very sobering statistics of domestic abuse across England and Wales, which demonstrates the high prevalence of domestic abuse. As a victim of over 18 years of abuse, can you please talk us through your experiences? Yeah, so I got with my um, abuser when I was 21, so quite quite young when I got with him. Um, I was a single single parent to a two-year-old and yeah, I, I met him um, over his sister's house and uh, thought he was very charming, very witty, very funny. Um, and we sort of hit it off straight away. Um, and things looking back now progress pretty quickly um, in the relationship. Um, and obviously, as we know, you know, it's a, it's a grooming process. And I always say, you know, if perpetrators slapped you on the first date, you certainly wouldn't go back for a second. Um, and it's all part of their uh, their, their behaviour and their tactics. And they, they ploy to get you to, to where they want you to be. 
So over the months, um, you know, we were courting and dating and uh, things sort of progressed very quickly. Um, within a year, he was living with me. Um, and not long after that, then I was pregnant, having uh, my second son, Jack. Um, the first significant uh, memory I have of the, of the violence um, was when I was seven months pregnant and he lifted me off the floor by my throat um, and let me know, let me go when my lips turned blue. And that was the first uh, real vivid memory I have of him um, being violent. Uh, once he fell to his knees then and cried like a baby, you know, he was six foot seven, 22 stone. Um, it's, it's awful seeing anybody cry, but to see a, a guy of that stature um, absolutely crying his eyes out, you know, um, apologising um, and saying it wouldn't happen again. You know, you, you think you can fix them and they're not, it's not going to happen again. It's just a blip. It's just a one off. Um, and my perpetrator come from a... Um, uh, abusive household as a child which is well documented in all the reports um and i just felt sorry for him and thought you know that that i could you know help him um and and get him to a a, a good place because obviously you know with with his backgrounds and everything um and just over the years it just just progressively in small doses got worse um, and it's almost like a drip feed process you know it's dropping that that a little bit of poison not enough to kill you but enough to keep maiming you as you as you're going along and before I knew it I was I was in it up to up to my eyes with it you know um, and I just couldn't see any way out so then I did finally pluck up the courage to leave after leaving a couple of times, you know, making a couple of silent 999 calls over the 18 years to the police. Um, and um, there was one particular incident where he'd strangled me really ferociously and it actually woke my kids up upstairs. Uh, Jack was 16, Josh was 20. And they both come running down the stairs because they thought they could hear a pig squealing downstairs. And obviously it was me being strangled. And um, Jack had a, a baseball bat in his hand and Josh was doing a silent 999 call. So um, um, I managed to break free then. And again, Darren straight away, oh my goodness, crying, you know, uh, the usual stuff as, as we see perpetrators then want to put the uh, the victim sort of status on them then um, for the sympathy vote, um, crying, you know, it'll never happen again. I can't believe what I've just done. And at that point, I think my mind was made up. I've got to get out of here because my fear then of staying with him certainly became greater than the fear of leaving him. So I decided to, to, uh, to um, that was it, I was going to leave. But after the strangulation, Darren, then the kids went back to bed because, you know, this is something that they'd seen before um, and knew that I was all right. Darren was crying. So now we were going to have that that period of time, you know, what I think in my head and the kids probably thought in their heads of the submissive Darren, you know, feeling very sorry for what he'd done. Um, so they went back to bed and Darren then proceeded to drag me up the stairs by my wrists. Um, and I knew exactly what he was going to do. Um, and next to Darren's bed, he had a drawer full of, uh, an, well, an arsenal of weapons. Stung, he had stun gun, flick knives, telescopic truncheons. And I just knew he was going to 
slit his wrists. And this was the the added sympathy vote that he was going to get then, because I think he could see in my eyes and what I said, you know, before he strangled me that I was going to leave because I'd had enough of him. Um, so this was going to be the ultimate for him, you know, the ultimate, you know, the, I, I'm the victim, you know, you can't leave me. And he actually did. He slit his wrists in front of Jack. Um, and then I just thought, wow, if he's capable of doing this, what else is he capable of doing? And um, so things progressed quickly from that. I ended up giving the police a long historical statement about the, the abuse. I filed for divorce. Um, and in, during a six week window, I was harassed and stalked by Darren, um, constantly phone call, the constant phone calls, the texts, him threatening to kill himself, that he can't live without me, which we know is normal behaviour from perpetrators to, to get us back to, to where they want us. And, um, and but something clicked in me uh, and I just thought, no, it's full steam ahead. And I did file for divorce. He wouldn't sign the papers. And that's what made me give a statement in the end to the police. He was charged with common assault for the non-fatal strangulation, which I think um, is absolutely berserk when I look back on it now, um, because you can get common assault for, for spitting in somebody's face, um, let alone, you know, the non-fatal strangulation. Um, but yeah, and, and then he just couldn't accept that it was over uh, and he'd lost total control and he came into my place of work on the 19th of August 2011 armed with a sawn-off shotgun. Uh, there was a battle in the shop and he ended up shooting me. Uh, he later went off and hung himself and um, I was in hospital for six weeks recovering from my injuries and sadly then I came out of hospital on the 23rd of September and Jack committed suicide on the 26th of September um, and that is why I speak out and do what I do. Thank you for sharing that Rachel. I know that obviously the, the experience that you, you've gone through have led you to where you are today in terms of campaigning, raising awareness and, and carrying out all the work that you do within the domestic uh, violence sector. If we can go back to your experiences, obviously at that time you were employed within the beauty industry in a hairdressing salon in Newport. Um, can you talk us about, can you talk us through your employer in terms of, you know, were they understanding, did they understand, you know, what domestic abuse was and, and what it was that you were going through? Well, to be quite honest with you, I didn't even know what women's aid was back then. So I didn't realise that I was in an um, abusive relationship. I knew it wasn't certainly wasn't normal. Um, but, you know, with the coercive control, I was heavily coerced, but yet didn't recognise until three years after the shooting that it was coercive controlling behaviour. Um, so for, for my employers to know what I was going through, I probably don't think they knew the extent of it. Um, and I can remember my my boss, uh, years after the shooting, she actually wrote a, a letter for me, which is um, out there on social media, and it ended up being picked up by a national paper. Um, and if you Google Rachel Williams employer's letter, it comes up. And do you know what? When she wrote the letter and um, I looked at it, I, I forgot that Darren actually done this. He used to make regular surprise visits to the salon and look over the reception desk, look at my column of appointments to check that there was no men booked in because I was under absolute no uncertain terms was I allowed to, to cut a man's hair. 
Um, so he would make a regular appearances. And I, I literally forgot all about that. Um, and she reminded me of that. And then another incident that happened where I was the only stylist free uh, and this gent came in for a haircut. And my boss said, you know, you're going to have to cut his hair. And I was absolutely bricking it because I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, if Darren walks in or if he if he drives past and sees me cutting a man's hair. So she said, well, just go right to the back of the shop. So they they positioned this guy right in the, the end station, um, which wasn't really visible from, from the road or, you know, if anybody drove past could see clearly in. Um, and she ordered all the trainees to, to circle around me while I cut his hair. You know, and when I think about it now, that, you know, not only was that absolutely absurd for me to be working in that environment, but also for my boss to have to do that, to keep not only me safe and the client safe, really, because the, if he'd have come in, there would have been murder, but the, the fellow trainees and staff as well. Um, so I don't think really anybody, um, you know, 10 years ago, really had a, a an insight as what we do now to domestic abuse and coercive and controlling behaviour. And I think, you know, thankfully, we do have more awareness. Thank you, Rachel. So someone who's worked in the industry, what do you think professionals in the industry could do uh, to show that their talents are safe places for, for victims of domestic abuse and for their clients to feel that um, it's OK to disclose? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, if, if I was to start um, up again in the hairdressing world, um, I certainly would have a, sp a safe space for um for my clients if they did want to disclose i would have awareness posters you know um some sort of badges uh, not that i'm plugging my badge you know the standard to domestic abuse <laughs> badges but something like that in there to say that this is a safe place uh you know to talk about it because we know you know a lot of uh, victims of, and survivors of domestic abuse are not not able to go anywhere other than to the school to the supermarkets to the hairdressers whether that's to get their whole their own hair done or the, the children's haircuts um so we know that that could potentially be a place that they could disclose and i think you know staff in uh, the beauty industry, you know, if they could be trained, you know, just the simple, have the simplest tools in the box um, to be able to uh, support somebody that come in. I mean, you know, we, we're not asking anybody to, you know, to go through the full disclosure and do everything else, but, you know, just for somewhere to have a safe space, uh, you know, and contact numbers that they could potentially phone if somebody came in and said, right, I, I, I need to get, get help. That's great, Rachel. And that leads me on to my, my final question for you, which is how can agencies, um, specialist agencies, uh, support the beauty industry to effectively support their clients, uh, clients to show who are showing uh, signs of domestic abuse um, and, and are, are reaching out for that support? What can we do as specialist agencies to support those uh, in the beauty industry? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, reach out to the, 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 the beauty industry and, and just offer some online training. You know, even if, if you just record some uh, basic awareness, um, you know, what to look for. Um, I think that would be a great tool um, because we know how busy salons get. And I can certainly vouch for that. You know, they're long days. Um, but, you know, if you had some e-learning, something online where you could, you know, pass it over to them free that they could upload and, and just have the basics tools and knowledge and we're not you know we got to remember as well not only is that salon going to be looking out for for uh, their clients uh, who would experience domestic abuse and violence 
they can have staff in there as well who are going to experience this. So, you know, so it's a win-win all round. So if, the more people that get clued up and have the tools to be able to deal with cases, with disclosures, then the better for everybody. Thank you, Rachel. Our next guest today is Natalie Hancock. Natalie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've just heard from Rachel and about her experiences with domestic abuse and the devastating impact this has had on her and her family. We know that this campaign is to raise further awareness of domestic abuse within the beauty industry across Wales and to take the don't be a bystander approach. Can you please tell us what is meant by bystander and what we are asking of communities within these campaigns? So for me, the term bystander, which we're referring to everyone, what we're trying to do within this campaign and the wider work around bystander initiatives is target the whole of society. So within the, the, the key aim around decreasing the prevalence of LDSV across all of society, what we need to do is go back to the roots. It, the term is asking individuals not just to stand by and witness, it's actually asking them to challenge the social norms that really underpin foul dress fee across all areas. And for me, it's about shaking that foundation and making sure that we can really make changes within society that have more long term impact. Um, within the campaign as well, we're asking communities to engage with us. What we want to do is really raise the awareness across all forms of address fee so our communities can be more resilient and it gives us an opportunity to, in a safe and a more effective way, raise that awareness, but ensure that the individuals are able then to access really specialist information, advice and guidance and essentially the support that they need um, to deal with what experiences that they've had. That's great, thank you. And you know, you've touched on the the need for communities to be informed and, and why being aware is so important. And obviously the question that you know I asked Rachel was how we can reach those communities uh, more effectively and raise more awareness. From a Mid Wales, uh, Mid and West Wales perspective, obviously you're you're the regional lead for that area um, and you've been taking a lead on this campaign. Can you tell us a bit more about what you are doing as a region to support this work and the initiative? Yeah, so just quickly, with part of our um, regional approach is around survivor engagement and communication. And for, for us, we can't use or target either of those priorities in isolation. The communication that we have with our partners and our communities, society as a whole across the region really needs to be integrated and informed by the experiences of the survivors. So what we're doing at the moment is we're trying uh, really hard to work with survivors around engagement and informing a framework of survivor engagement that will really inform the work that we do across the region, which includes what communications that we're supporting and that we are trying to get out there within our uh, regional work. Um, so part of that is obviously, like I said, engaging with survivors who have either engaged with support or may not have engaged with support and, and to understand why that is, making sure that we have the diverse range of experiences across all forms of address fee, but also all, all survivors within that region to make sure that our communication is relevant and that people are able to relate to that. Um, and actually recognising that some individuals out there may not be recognising themselves as survivors or victims and we need to make sure that 
like I said, those norms or acceptance of what is currently happening is challenged within that communication. So that's the part of the wider work that we're doing. Um, but being more specific in relation to this campaign, we're working with um, specialist service providers to make sure that we've got some really high quality content and online training materials that we will be sharing with uh, the beauty industry. So that includes in people who are working in the industry now, but also individuals within colleges and education establishments who are training to, to work within that industry in the future. So we're really equipping people who are on the ground and working with individuals now, but also those individuals that will be going into the industry. And think, we think that is a really important part of this piece of work. Um, the training, like I said, will be delivered by specialists. We will really link with the um, available support that we have across the region now. It's important that, as Rachel said, those industry and beauty workers actually know what support is available, how to access it, and that they have a real relationship with those support providers so that if they need to signpost somebody or pass information on, they understand what that support, support looks like, how it can be accessed. Um, and who's going to be delivering it essentially. It's all about making sure that um, the individuals who are working in this industry are informed to make sure that they can pass that information on to individuals for themselves to make that informed decision. For us it's about empowerment and making sure that we're not forcing this in information on people within society but they are made aware and that they can then make the decision if they want to to access support at a time that is safest for them. That's fantastic. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, this campaign sounds very wide reaching um, and, you know, it, it will raise awareness of domestic abuse within the sectors. Um, the one question I had, and, I, and you did touch on it, was around the survivor voices. Can you tell me why it's so important that we hear the survivor voices when we're doing campaigns like this? For me and the work across the region, what we've seen, and I've worked uh, within this field for um, over 15 years now and what we've seen is that survivor experiences is is something that's been talked about but it's very rarely done very well. We want survivors to inform the work that we're doing to make sure that we are actually making a real impact in, in the region but also across Wales um, and to do that we really need to understand what experiences survivors have had and learn from what didn't go so well. So like I said earlier it's important to understand the experiences of people who have accessed support and how that helped and supported them, but also why individuals feel that perhaps that support that was on offer wasn't relevant or applicable to them. It's really important that we understand, as Rachel's um, you know, shared her, her story with us, how there were missed opportunities, how there are gaps in support and provision and how we can join up the special support that we do have on offer with opportunities within society that we can actually um, raise that awareness on a more, on an everyday basis, basically. So that that, as I said earlier, challenges the social norms that we see every day. Um, it's about making sure that the specialism that we have on offer actually transfers in our everyday lives and that how society recognises and those attitudes and beliefs to be unacceptable, but then also how that transfers into in individuals actually having the support that they need or want at, at the right time. I think survivor experiences 
is something that's always been um, referred to, but never, like I said, used as as we should be, because it needs to inform exactly how we um, provide service, but also how we communicate with with society and the communities that we are working in. Because us sitting in an office and thinking about how we could get messages out there, it, it's not going to get anywhere unless we listen to survivors and listen to how best we can integrate this in, into society. I mean, the communities we have in Mid and West Wales are very diverse, but we've also got some, you know, really specialism that that we need to hone in on too. So, for example, we have um, a large portion of the population who are older people um, and we're doing some work around the 16 days of activism to support and and really channel work within that that group of society. Um, but it's about, like I said, learning from the experiences of survivors and what the missed opportunities or what opportunities we ha we have to really keep improving and um, getting that information out there in a, in a really relevant way for the people that are living in Mid and West Wales. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Our final guest for today's podcast is Sarah Kirkpatrick, the Chief Executive of Welsh Women's Aid. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. During today's podcast, we've heard from both Rachel and Natalie about how important it is that communities are aware of domestic abuse and know where to signpost for support. You know, we know that COVID-19 was a particularly difficult time for victims of domestic abuse due to the isolation faced as a result of the restrictions, potentially placing them at higher risk of harm from their abusers. And we also know that during uh, COVID-19, Welsh Women's Aid developed a, a very useful toolkit, uh, the Don't Be a Bystander toolkit in which Welsh Women's Aid highlighted that community response and social solidarity is even more vital in tackling violence against women, domestic abuse and sexual violence. However, this needed to be safe and done in an effective way to best meet the needs of survivors across Wales. So Sarah, can you please talk us through how the toolkit was developed and what the toolkit is designed to achieve? It's a really good question. So one of the things that we knew was that to do things safely and effectively, we needed to listen to those people with lived experience. So the toolkit itself is actually designed with input from survivors who talked of their own lived experience of what had been helpful and also giving us a steer about what had not been helpful. So that the, the toolkit is designed with, by and for those who have experienced uh, violence and oppression in their own lives. Thank you, Sarah. And what is it designed to achieve? It's actually designed to achieve getting everybody involved. Many, many people reach out for help to a friend, um, a neighbour, a person that they trust, a relative. And sometimes people don't know what the right response is. The toolkit is full of very simple, clear messages that allow everybody to feel confident about giving a safe response to a survivor rather than feeling disempowered or unable to give safe advice and so choosing to give no advice or no support. So it's really simple messages. There's messages in there for professionals as well as um, advice for friends, family, for those who care about someone who's experiencing uh, abuse and oppression. Thank you. You've just mentioned it about uh, support or for friends or family members. 
what, it, what does the specific guidance look like that can be accessed to ensure a, appropriate support is provided and where can people get that information from? They can get it from our website. If they follow us on any of the social media channels, you can click through our social media channels to get to the don't be a by the um, I stand with survivors and the bystander toolkit. It's got specific advice for different people. So there is different headlines that you can click for different things. Every single component is the same in that it is simple. It's easy to memorize. We're not asking people to learn an essay or asking survivors to learn a code word. What we're saying is if everybody in the community is able to give a gentle steer in a useful direction, then we can together end distressing situations sooner. Um, uh, it's such a powerful toolkit, Sarah, and I know that made a huge difference during COVID-19 when uh, Welsh Women's Aid developed it for, for survivors who were uh, isolation and a higher risk of harm. So, um, yes, yeah, so we can say that we as Cowan DBS has also used that toolkit and we know how impactful it is. So my final question for you today is, um, we know that Welsh Women's Aid run the Live Fear Free helpline. Can you talk us through the service of the helpline, please? The service of the helpline is amazing. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there are bilingual helpline advisors who can, who are constantly responding to calls, not just telephone calls via the free phone number. There's actually been an 84% increase in silent forms of contact. So you can get in touch by email, you can do text chat, one of the things, and you mentioned about isolation, one of the things is that people have found themselves in a situation where they are not alone and they can still reach out to the Live Fear Free helpline, get that advice, articulate their problem, even in a silent way, and get advice and support, connection to local services where appropriate. Sometimes people are looking for what is in my area. Sometimes people are... In a, in a place of questioning, is this okay? Is this wrong? Am I safe? And so it's a space where they can explore that, come to the right answer. And if that means being referred to and connected with a local service, either for outreach support or perhaps for emergency accommodation, then that's something that the helpline helps with. We're really conscious that it's hard enough to reach out for support around these issues. It's even harder to try and do that in not your mother tongue. So as well as being a bilingual helpline, we also have access to language line so that if someone does not speak English or Welsh, we can actually access translators so that people can speak in the easiest voice for them and talk about their problem in their words without having to translate in their heads to be able to get help. And that, so that's what the Live Fear Free Helpline does, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They speak to survivors. They speak to concerned friends and relatives. They also speak to professionals of offering advice, support and help when necessary. And it's such a, 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 an embedded service across Wales and it's um, a, a fantastic service. And I know that the team are very passionate about their work within the Live Fear Free Helpline. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. It was really insightful. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you. No problem at all.
Thank you all very much for your very insightful and thought-provoking um, comments and, and discussions today uh, for this podcast. As a society, we have more to do to raise awareness uh, and tackle domestic abuse. Um, if you are concerned that somebody you know may be experiencing domestic abuse, there is help and support available across Wales. You can contact the Live Fear Free Helpline on 0808801080800, or you can access a full list of services in Wales by going to www.welshwomensaid.org.uk. And please remember, if you or someone you know are at immediate risk of harm, please contact 999. Thank you for listening to the Don't Be a Bystander podcast.